Hey, listeners, just a heads up. The case that we talk about today involves interpersonal violence and may be distressing to some listeners. Welcome to another episode of Bioethics for the People. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Devin Stahl, who, according to her student reviews, should be cloned and teach all of the bioethics. And he's Tyler Gibb, who, according to his students, is best described as the goat of bioethics. Hello, Devin. Hello, Tyler. Good morning. Good morning. So I've got a case to talk about today. Awesome. You're up. So what's the case, Tyler? Okay. So here's a question. When we're thinking about kind of the big cases in bioethics, there's one that has to do with confidentiality, right? And I think that that's one that we're going to talk about today. So can you name the case that is kind of the seminal bioethics case dealing with confidentiality? So I think of Tarasov? Yep, Tarasov. Uh, Good. I, I should get a prize. I get a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you remember about Tarasov? Okay. She had this kind of a fun last name. Yeah. And and a very unfun case. So yes, not a fun case. Yeah. I it's not one I teach on, so it's not one that I'm super familiar with. From what I remember, it's about a young woman who is murdered by a young man. I think they're both in college. And he had at some point told, I don't know if it was a therapist or a school counselor, that he was, um, I don't know if they had dated or if he was just sort of infatuated with her, but he had made insinuations that he would harm her. And he did, and he killed her. And her family, I think, sued the college or the therapist. Wow. Okay. I apparently don't know a lot about this case, but saying that. No, you're doing great. You're doing great. That's, that's uh, all of those things are mostly okay. true, Okay. which I think is, is pretty good for somebody who doesn't teach on the case. Okay. So you're right. So it's the, the case about a young gentleman named Prozenjit Podar. So that's how I'm going to say his name. I know that's probably not right, but Podar. So he was a graduate student at the University of Berkeley in 1968, 67, 68-ish. So that's the time frame, right? So I can imagine being a college student at Berkeley in 1967, 1968 may have been a different experience than I had <laughs> Probably college. at BYU. I'm thinking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm sure that we had, we, we had good times in college, but just probably a little bit different. So... Potter is a graduate student in, I'm not exactly sure his field, something about electrical engineering or electrical design, something like that in the STEM fields. He is living in the international house because he's from India and it meets, becomes, you know, crosses paths with another student who is an undergrad and her name is Tatiana Tarasov. Okay. Sometimes she's referred to as Tanya, but Tarasov. So they meet in a folk dancing class in Berkeley in 1968-ish, okay? Okay. So you're right. He becomes infatuated with her. And there's a little bit of, uh, you know, maybe disagreement. We're not quite sure exactly whether there were feelings on both sides or whatever. But over the course of the semester leading into the winter break, they interacted more during this class, maybe saw each other socially. He definitely thought that there was more to the relationship than she did. This all comes to head. And for some weird reason, what happened at New Year's Eve gets referenced 
in almost every account of what happened, as if it's like this little golden nugget that explains everything else that happened, which obviously isn't the case. But New Year's Eve, they shared a kiss. Okay. So this was fuel to Podar's infatuation. He thinks that they are um, in relationship now. She is continuing to date other people and rebuffing his advances for more intimate relationships. Okay. So yeah, so he thinks that this kiss is a big deal. She does not. There's hurt feelings. Yeah. And I think that it's important to note how interesting intercultural communication can be, particularly in situations hmm. where there are, uh, you know, intimate romantic relationships. Like the cross coding that has to happen interculturally is just, I mean, it's almost impossible to not screw up in really important ways, right? Oh, so is is he from another Yeah, so he's then? from India. Yep. So he's a international okay. graduate student on a on a student visa. There, there are references in some of the some of the stuff that I read and prep for this that references like what caste he's from or what part of Delhi his family is, what village he's from, as if that was also kind of explanatory in some almost racist kind of way. Um, but yeah, so he is an international graduate student and meets this woman, falls in love with her. She's not reciprocating it. So now we're in, you know, January-ish. He uh, continues to kind of obsess about her and says some concerning things to his roommate. And his roommate recommends that he seeks out treatment or counseling or get in touch with the healthcare system in some way. That's pretty amazing for the 60s. I don't know what's going on with therapy in the 60s, but that seems like a pretty like savvy right. move on his roommate's part. I, th I think that we would be impressed with that response from a roommate right now, right? <laughs> Yeah, you know, no offense right. to college kids. It was a good move on the roommate's part. At the same time, we find out later that Podar was stalking, uh, I think is a fair description of Tanya, uh, contriving ways in which their paths would cross and they'd talk and, and he would actually, I'm, I'm not sure the technology at this point in the 1960s, but he was secretly recording some of their conversations and then obsessively playing Oof. them back like at night and trying to figure out why, what he could oh, have wow. done differently to make her fall in love with him. Or maybe she was giving sub subtextual cues that he should be picking up on. Right. So kind of, kind of dark, yeah. not, not great. Mm -hmm. So he does, which again, this is, this is a, I think probably an unusual set of circumstances in this time frame. but not only does the roommate recognize there's some mental health issues, but, and recommends that he go see somebody about it, but he does do that. He goes and seeks out treatment and starts being seen at the, I think the student health center by a, a Dr. Moore, who's a, a psychologist. And he diagnoses him for the first time as having paranoid, acute schizophrenic reaction to, to this uh, thing. So oh, wow. seems like an appropriate diagnosis. And this is where I think the case is really interesting. So Tarasov is a kind of a one, two, Tarasov one, Tarasov two case in the ways that they're taught, but that's kind of more of a quirk of our legal system rather than a difference of kind of doctrine that comes out of this. Okay. All right. So far, so good. You with us? Okay. Got it. So okay. I think everything that you described kind of aligns with kind of the more uh, more details that I'm fleshing out. So so Podar is involved in treatment with Dr. Moore. Okay. And this is important because Dr. Moore gives him his diagnosis. And also towards the end of their, I don't know if it was like six weeks of weekly therapy or what their kind of treatment protocol was, but towards the end of that, Podar expresses to Dr. Moore that he has feelings of, of violence and wanting to kill somebody. And because they had been seeing, seeing each other, it, it's, an, it's interesting that this is also something that's really emphasized in, in some of the really detailed analysis of the case, is that 
in the session where he expressed the violence, uh, the violent urges or the intention to do violence towards Tarasov, that he actually doesn't name her. But Dr. Moore, because they had seen each other for a period of time, is able very quickly to identify that he's talking about Tarasov. A lot of the kind of off the cuff, uh, really quick and dirty summaries of the case paint Dr. Moore in kind of, I think, in an unnecessarily negative light. So a lot of them will kind of tell the story of, well, Tarasov is the case of a psychologist was told about this violent uh, urges or intent to do violence, did nothing. Patient, the client or the patient goes out and, and actually does the thing that they said they were going to do. Isn't it terrible? The doctor should have done something, right? So that's kind of the, the case that we hear. Yeah, that's that's how I usually hear it, right? Like he should have he should have tried to intervene, right. and he didn't. Like a lot of these cases, as we start to get into the, the details, into the weeds a little bit, it's not really quite the story. It's a little bit of a different story. So Dr. Moore actually recognized that this person was in danger. And at the time, the tools available to him were a petition insert or a 5150 was what they call it in California. So what do you know about that? Is that a hold? Is that where you like can hold somebody involuntarily? Yes, exactly. So it's an involuntary commitment or involuntary hold of a person for psychiatric reasons. So usually they're in a, some sort of psychiatric uh, emergency and the general civil liberties that we all enjoy are suspended for a discrete period of time in order for this to this person to be made safe. Yeah, so that's a big deal, right? So he, when he said this, the, the psychologist said, that is such a audacious claim, or you're clearly in some sort of emergency situation, so so much so that I'm going to commit yep. you against your will right. to a hospital setting. Another interesting detail that is often overlooked is that Tarasov, at this time during this week, or you know maybe it's spring break, I don't know, but she is actually on vacation. Dr. Moore knows this. They talk about this. I think because Podar had, had told her that she's on vacation in Brazil and won't return for a period of time. So she's out of the country. And you know, if we're jumping into Dr. Moore's mind, he has a patient who is clearly not doing well. He has the tools available to commit him. And the person who's most at risk is in a different country. So Dr. Moore, what he does is he writes out a report, writes out a letter, sends it to the campus police and says, this is the patient. This is the name. This is the threat that they made. This is how I'm interpreting it. Please pick him up and we'll do this petition insert, and you know, things will be good. Reasonable? Reasonable. So he doesn't commit him right. when he says the thing. So he lets him leave and then says later, no, I think that was such a big scary yeah. statement that right. I need to have him committed. The wrinkle there was, um, so he lets him leave the hospital. And then Dr. Moore, who I think was a, a quite junior healthcare provider, talks to his supervisor. And the supervisor informs him of may, maybe his obligations or ways to think about it. And then he sends a letter to the police asking them to go pick him up. I see. Okay. And this is actually, a, I think it's a Friday leading into the weekend. But again, Tanya's out of the country. So direct threat is probably mitigated in the minds of Moore. All right. Mm-hmm. Oh, also in the letter, Dr. Moore says that Podar actually is really sophisticated in in masking his symptoms. So he actually says in the letter to the police, he's going to seem very rational, very reasonable, right? But that's just part of his kind of pathology. So he gives them a heads up, like, 
he's going to seem okay, but I need you to know that he's not okay. He's made these threats. I need you to, we need to do this again. I feel like this doctor's kind of nailing it, right? Yeah. 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 Seems appropriate. Police go, they make contact with Podar. And just as the doctor described, he's very reasonable, makes good explanations about what he said and how it wasn't that big of a deal, promises to, to not make any contact with her. So they actually, I think they bring him into the, the campus police office and question him and interrogate him. And he is able to satisfy the police officers that he's that he's okay, that he recognizes that it was, oh no, uh, he shouldn't have said that. Uh, he doesn't really believe that. So he, so he talks his way out of this and the police let him go. Oh no. So is that in their authority? I guess I don't understand how these things work, but gosh, you'd think that they should just commit him because uh-huh. that's the thing that they were instructed to do, but maybe they have the yeah. authority. Yeah, to I say, think that no, they have, they have so. um, some professional prerogative too, right? I mean, they can say, you know, I don't think that this guy's actually described, you know, he's not presenting in the way that he's being described or, you know, I don't, I don't know the details. Yeah, but they're not psychiatrists. Right, come yeah. on, come on, police. <laughs> so that's what happened. Dr. Moore probably heard later that the police picked him up and didn't commit him, obviously, or didn't bring him in for the petition insert, I can understand if he had some feelings about that, particularly because when Tanya comes home from vacation, Podar finds out that she's home. He actually had made friends with her brother in order to keep tabs on her. And so he knows that she's back. Uh, They have a, the Tarasovs own a house outside of Berkeley someplace. He knows where it is through the brother and goes, Tarasov's mom is there and knows about Podar and knows that he is a threat, tells him to go away. He leaves, gets a weapon, comes back later when Tarasov is there and it ends up murdering her. Oh, yeah. He so is tragic. distraught, um, calls the police, uh, confesses, and you know, is taken into custody and charged. So what, what happens in the criminal process is so he so as an international, you know, someone who is here studying on an international student visa, there's all types of interesting, well, maybe not that interesting, in wrinkles about as far as like immigration status <laughs> and and charging. Sure. Interesting right. to another kind of podcast, yeah. but maybe not so much to our listeners. I think it's yeah, kind okay. of interesting. <laughs> we'll move on. <laughs> One of the interesting things that happens is that he gets charged criminally, right? And actually enters into a plea deal. And part of the plea deal is that he gets deported and can never come back. And it's kind of a mess um, how justice kind of fell on its face in prosecuting him. Um, oh, so they deport him. Presumably, so he can be tried in India or just... Just get him out of the country. Part of the plea deal, and we don't know the details of the plea deal, but part of it is that, uh, you know, he can never return to the United States. If he does, he will be... So basically, they put on uh, suspension or on hiatus, suspended the charges. If he ever comes back to the United States, then they charge him. Okay. Well, that seems like, yeah, miscarriage of justice there because he murdered someone. Yeah. So he's initially charged with murder two, uh, murder in the second degree, which is kind of like more like the, it's not premeditated. It's more like a crime of passion type of situation that actually got Mm -hmm. downgraded to manslaughter. And then, yeah. What? I mean, he made threats against her and then got a weapon and then killed her. And that's not premeditated. I don't know. Maybe there's, it's stickier in the case itself. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and try to defend that one. That's what happened. You represent the law, Tyler. Don't you represent the law? Just because I'm fascinated by it does not mean I am in the position to defend it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Understandably, Tarasov's parents are upset about this whole situation. Okay. And so when they find out that not only did Podar 
see a psychiatrist, but he actually told, or psychologist, he actually told them of the threat. And then still there was no, no protection that your daughter still died, despite him saying what he was going to do. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So they filed a lawsuit against the healthcare providers claiming that they actually were negligent in not adequately taking this information and doing something about it, even though, even though Dr. Moore did really, right? Yeah, but he didn't inform them. Is, is that what they would have wanted, right? So this is the yes. question of confidentiality is, you know, he's, Podar was his patient, so he has to keep that information, you know, the, their conversations confidential, presumably, would this be an exception? At the time, I presume that there's, there's no precedent for this, so you are supposed to keep those right. things confidential. And they're saying, no, you should have informed us so that we could have protected her or her right. so she could have protected yeah. herself. And so this is so this is where the, the bioethics gets uh, really kind of interesting about this. So we have this ethical obligation or professional obligation to not only um, be the type of person who is able to be worthy of the trust of our patients, right? But also to protect the things that are said mm-hmm. in those type of intimate, some people would say like sacred relationships. Right. So uh, there's a couple of other types of relationships that we recognize as being sacred. And without really, really good justification, we can't violate that confidential kind of cone of silence. Right. Yeah. Like priests. Right. So you confess something in the confessional booth. The police can't then go, oh, you have to tell us what they said. Or you know, I can be confident that if I tell my priest that I, you know, did something wrong and I want, you know, religious absolution for it. That he's not going to also go and tell, you know, my neighbor or the police or the newspaper, right? So, mm-hmm. so he has some professional right. obligations as part of his duty, and um, I, as a patron or a client of that, can rely upon that confidence in order to achieve some other greater good, right? Right. So we wouldn't tell our psychiatrists or psychologists things if we thought that then yes. they were going to use it against us. So it, it sort of opens up space right. to have real conversations. Otherwise, that therapeutic relationship. Yeah. And different. so that applies to mental health professionals, as well as it applies to to physicians and nurses and people who are in that type of care relationship as well. But there's not a whole lot of those relationships that are um, kind of by public policy or by statute in some situations to be protected. So um, we think of patron or a parishioner priest, parishioner um, clergyman, right? So the sanctity of the clergy, uh, doctor-patient relationships, and then uh, lawyer-client relationships is another one, right? Um, mm-hmm. But outside of those, there's not really a whole lot of situations in which we can really be confident that our conversations are, are going to be held private. Right. So that's like the holy trinity of uh, confidentiality there. But right, if our students tell us they committed a crime, I might be responsible for reporting that. Yeah. In fact, and, in and many not cases, only I would am. you have like an, an ethical or a professional obligation to do that, in in many states, if you didn't do that, you could be punished for it. You could be sometimes criminally punished for not right. having done that. Yeah, yep, that's true in Texas about anything involving mm-hmm. violence, especially yeah. sexual. And sometimes violence. it's identified as like against children or against elderly, for example, elderly folks. But it's a so mandatory reporter is the the term that we use often. Okay, mm-hmm. so that so this is the question. So we have this ethical obligation that is in intention, at least maybe not in direct conflict, with a uh, a public good, a, a benefit of you know, something in society that we want to protect, which is avoid violence against vulnerable people. So we have this tension, and so the the ethical question 
you know, in my mind is what are the limits of that professional obligation? Okay. Is it always and forever and there shall not be any violation of this ethical principle? I don't know. Those are tough to justify in most cases, right? There's usually exceptions Mm -hmm. at some end of the spectrum, but this is really a question of where do we draw the line? Yeah, you have to drop somewhere. Like, I can't imagine anyone saying, like, if I if I had a patient who was admitting to, like, harming their own child, right, continually, I don't think I could stand by and, you know, continue to let that happen because I have a professional obligation to that patient. I mean, at some level, you have to protect right. other third parties. But, but, but it's this balancing act, right? And so part of uh, this case was, the, the fundamental question in my mind was, is this type of threat against this person said in this way, in, in this context, is that something that not only is it okay if you do it, if you, if you disclose that, but in this situation, you must. And to not do that would, put, would mean that you did something wrong and you could be punished for it, right? So that's where it switches from a, a, right. a recommendation or it's permissible, it's okay if you do this to thou shalt do it. And if thou doesn't, thou shalt be punished. Right, right. And in, so like in my clinical practice, that's the difference of, you know, if you do this, like if you report that your elderly patient with dementia shouldn't be driving, you, the law will protect you from somebody counter suing you for reporting that, right? So like you are legally protected if somebody comes back and sues you for that disclosure versus if you don't disclose that to legal, you know, parties, you will be prosecuted. So like the, it's either a protection from the law or like a mandatory reporting obligation. Yeah. And those are pretty different. And, and, that, and that's exactly right. That is where the kind of the crux of this case, or at least where the, the Tarasov family, that's what they were claiming is that Dr. Moore, even though he did some, a lot more things than we kind of give him credit for, that he didn't do enough, that he actually had a duty not just mm-hmm. to do all these other things that he did, but he actually had a duty to warn the potential victim. And so that's where that term duty to yeah. warn comes is from this case. Yeah. Yeah. And so what are the parameters of that? Because it, you know, yeah, so I'm sure you'll get into this, but when do you have a duty to warn? How specific does the, you know, claim need to be? How do you warn? Yeah. These are, and so this case was decided in 1974, okay? So this is what we call Tarasov 1, oh, yeah. um, which implies that there's going to be a follow-up and the waters are just going to get muddier, <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll, we'll wade through them together. So Tarasov 1 decided that yes, so the district court uh, s- dismissed the Tarasovs and said, no, there's no, th- this was not a case of negligence. The doctor did enough. Maybe he didn't do everything he could have, but he did enough. He discharged whatever obligation he had. And not disclosing this other information was not, uh, he was not liable for that. Or the damages that occurred because of that failure, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so so the district court, that's, that was their finding. They found against, they decided against the Tarasovs. They appealed it to the appeals court. They decided against to the Tarasovs. But they, you know, gosh darn it, they are nothing but persistent. And they appealed it to the Supreme Court of California. The Supreme Court of California ruled in favor of the Tarasovs. And they said, yes, not only, so he, Dr. Moore may have done all of these other things, but you're right. He had a duty to warn the potential victim. 
because the person was easily identifiable. And so it gave a, a list of kind of criteria that must be satisfied in order for this duty to apply. Um, but you know, that was the, that was the decision that yes, Dr. Moore did not do enough. He actually had a duty to warn the potential victim. Okay. So, so Tarasov herself. Yes. He should have tried to get in touch with her. Yep. And if, and failing that, then he should have done something, um, you know, contact her parents or roommates or whatever, you know, done something more to warn her. Okay. Okay. So this case um, actually gets, it, it gets a little muddy and way too much in the, the, the legal weeds of it, but actually gets, there's a rehearing of this case. So it gets remanded and then there's a rehearing. And so in 1976, it comes back up through the system, back to the Supreme Court, kind of a, a redo of the original 1974 case. So this is Tarasov 2. Okay. The, the remix. The remix, 2.0. And they, they rule again, they find in favor of the Tarasovs that there was a duty, but they kind of tweak the duty a little bit. So they don't say okay. that the doctor had a duty to warn. It actually says there's a, a little bit broader duty, which we're going to call a duty to protect. Oh, okay. And, war and warning somebody can be part of protecting, but mm -hmm. also identifying the police officer can be part of protecting. Does that make sense? That okay. warning somebody is part of, is one component of a broader duty to warn or to protect somebody so does that mean so just so i'm clear that he had more obligations in tarasov 2 or less meaning like warning her would have satisfied the criteria to protect so there could have been multiple ways to protect warn might have been one of them or warning was not quite enough to protect her great question <laughs> um what the court decided was that they're they're kind of setting aside the the warn aspect and they okay. said, doctors in these situations, physicians, healthcare providers have a duty to protect the potential victim. There's a lot of different ways in which we can protect somebody. So we can call the police, we can do involuntary commitment, we can do maybe a couple of other things, or also part of protecting would be to warn the potential victim so they could actually make decisions okay. about how to protect themselves further. So what Dr. Moore failed to do, so he had an obligation to, to protect uh -huh. the potential victim. He could have discharged that duty by warning her okay, or by talking to the police or maybe talking to the police and warning. Okay. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. But he, he, it sounds like he did satisfy that if he tried to commit him and told the police to go get him. Right. Isn't that, that yeah. wasn't enough? Right. Yeah. So it was enough. So, okay. you know, again, this kind of gets into the weeds of the legal, the legal technicalities of it, but they found that there was this duty. And so they created this legal precedent that there was this duty. Okay. And then whether or not he actually satisfied it or not kind of got remanded. And then there was an out-of-court settlement and other stuff. Okay. But the legal doctrine of a duty to warn had been uh, established in 1974, Tarasov one, And then it got slightly modified into a duty per to protect in 1976 in Tarasov okay. two. Okay. okay? I've never heard of a duty to protect. Just to say, like, I've heard of this duty to warn, mm -hmm. right? So that that's the one that sticks in my mind. I've never heard of a duty to protect. That one didn't didn't have the sticking power, at least to my mind. Is that yeah. do you think that's right? Kind of. But okay. what also gets happened is they it, they get muddled together and they start mm -hmm. to be described as the same thing. Whereas okay. 
they're actually a little bit different. You know, one's kind of a subset of the other one, gotcha. but sometimes it gets muddled into a duty to protect slash warn or okay. <laughs> protect and warn or warn and protect, right? Uh -huh. And also what also confuses this a little bit is that each state, again, this is a Supreme Court of California case, not a US Supreme Court case. Right. So it's just making precedent for the state of California. Mm -hmm. Lots of other Supreme Courts, uh, state Supreme Courts will look to their peers and if there's a good rule or a precedent, then they can kind of adopt it as persuasive. Maybe they don't have to follow that precedent, but they can say, you know, look, California is doing it this way. We are reasonable. They're reasonable. Maybe we should do something similar to them. Right. Because you don't want to have to wait until something similar happens in your state in order to say, like, this is a good rule. Right. Is that right. the case? Or they, I, I, the way that I would describe it is that Supreme Court cases or Supreme Courts, and usually they're clerks, are a little bit lazy. And if somebody <laughs> has already done the legwork, they're not uh, going to reinvent the wheel, sure. right? Okay, okay. So okay. if they're able to do to kind of buy incorporation, coast off of the you know drag off the the coattails of California, who had had to go through this for the first time, then they're going to do that. Okay. So each state deals with this a little bit differently, and depending on the way that the the cases came about in those other states. Sometimes it's more emphasis on the 74 decision on Tarasov 1. So it's more like a duty to warn. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's more like a duty to protect. Okay. Some states have said, you know what? Both of those things don't really make sense in this context. We're going to do something else. Mm -hmm. And so they don't follow Tarasov at all. Okay. Sometimes they've made ter the Tarasov duty to protect thing a lot bigger, a lot more onerous, a mm -hmm. bigger duty. Sometimes some states have made it even more narrow. Right. Okay. So it really depends on what state individual practitioners are, are, are practicing. But that is kind of what fell out of the Tarasov cases. Okay. So not all states then have this duty to protect. Well, let's call it the duty to warn and or protect. <laughs> uh, slash, <laughs> slash and or. Okay. Uh, asterisk. Okay. Mm -hmm. But this is, it's interesting from, a, I think, from an ethics perspective, particularly from a bioethics perspective. Like we think confidentiality is a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. we, we, we want to protect that and we want doctors to know when to violate that and when not to yeah. violate that. Right. All right. And it seems like there should be some rules about that that are clear. At the same time, cases are really particular. And so you want to like leave some leeway that will protect physicians who are just trying to do their best. I, I, when I hear about this case, I'm really conflicted, actually. Okay. Um, just to say, I mean, what happened was so terrible. So I, I don't in any way want to say like, no, he was fine. Everything happened as it should have. Like, clearly that's not the case. Would warning have made any difference? I actually don't know if it would have or not. But I, I, I do want to protect this. I, you know, I don't want people to be scared to tell their doctors things, right? I think there needs to be a really strict confidentiality I do think that doctors have some obligation to protect like identifiable third parties who might be harmed. But like, I'm not sure where that line is. Like, how specific do you need to be? Um, can we use professional judgment? Should it be some sort of mandatory reporting? And if so, what are the exact rules about that? Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I almost want to, I want to leave some discretion up to psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, people in therapeutic relationships without leaving it totally up to them. So I, I just, yeah. I think the lines are really blurry for me. Do you have yeah. a, I mean, how do you feel? Well, you know, the courts have kind of wrestled with this a little bit. And um, I mean, the, 
the definition or the explanation is that physicians must use their best judgment. Yeah, okay. Healthcare providers must do what a reasonable physician should do in that situation. And that, you know, students always, uh, it's it's pretty entertaining uh, teaching medical students um, kind of th these legal cases because th it's funny because they think that I'm going to be here and like defend all of the cases, right? <laughs> like, or defend <laughs> yeah. a court or, you know, but I not. But often it gets into this situation where it's the, the, this, the students are like, well, it's then it just becomes he said, she said, right? It just becomes a, a, a disagreement of like, how do you ever prove whether somebody said something or didn't say something. And they think it's like this gotcha question, like, oh, well, you know, I could just, I don't have to document anything. I just have to remember that, you know, just say that I, that I had this conversation and who's going to prove me otherwise, right? Oh, yikes, except that you do have to document it or else it doesn't count. That's what we always yeah. say in clinical ethics. Like, if you had the conversation, but you didn't write it down in the chart, then you basically didn't have the conversation. Yeah. It's hard to prove the conversation didn't exist, yeah. ever existed. But what's what's I think an interesting way to to take a to take a different perspective is that actually we vote on it. We vote on whether we think that you did the thing that you were accused of mm -hmm. or not. And they're like, well, right. we don't vote on it. I'm like, what? Well, actually, we do. Listen, so we ha have a disagreement between two people. So say you and I have a contract. I violate the contract. You bring a lawsuit against me, and I say, no, I didn't. We didn't. Um, and there was an oral contract, a verbal contract, and uh, you know we're in, in dispute. We, as a society, vote on whether or not we believe Devin or we believe Tyler. And the way that we do that is we have this really complicated lottery system that everybody has to be a part participant in, and your name might randomly get drawn, and then you and 11 of your other randomly chosen people through this lottery are presented the evidence, both sides get to, to say their say, and you guys get to vote on what the facts are, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's our jury process system. And so right. it's, I don't know, I think it's uh, interesting. I, I love teaching this case. So I actually make my fourth year students do a mock malpractice trial. And the oh, facts of the case are, are kind of patterned off of this. So mm -hmm. if there's any up and coming fourth year students, uh, stop listening because <laughs> it's going to ruin the mock trial this year. Yeah, I mean, so do you think that the the judgment was correct? I mean, either in Tarasov one or two. Um, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> That's our you know, tagline. You, it depends. You know who I'd really like to get their opinion on uh -huh. about this is who? Dr. Michael J. Redinger, MD, <laughs> University of Notre Dame, class of twenty or two thousand four. No, two thousand seven. And and why uh, would we care what Dr. Redinger thinks? Well, I don't really care what Dr. Redinger said, said. He couldn't be with us today, but he he's one of our colleagues, and uh, he promised me a free round of golf every time I mentioned him on the podcast. Oh, geez. You guys and your golf. <laughs> so uh, Dr. Michael J. Redinger, MD, MA, Notre, University of Notre Dame, class of 2007. Do, do you get um, extra for all the na name dropping all of his uh, universities? Well, it's it's just part of the, the deal. It's part of the deal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, so that's Tarasov. I, I think right. it's a, uh, an interesting case that, oh, your question was about the whether or not I thought it was right. Mm -hmm. I think that it does a good job insofar as it does a good job at anything of articulating that there is this limit to confidentiality. And we, we can kind of go through the process of figuring out where that line is, but that there is an exception and uh, it's, a, it's an obligation in some situations. I think 
I think is right. I think that mm -hmm. that tracks. Mm -hmm. How about you? Yeah, I think so. I, it has, there has to be limits. And I think sometimes there has to be a positive obligation to reveal confidential information between a, a physician and their patient. Yeah. And so in clinical ethics, which you and I spend a lot of our time doing, obviously, we get presented with cases where the question about confidentiality, that line is in question, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's questions about, okay, maybe my patient doesn't have, for example, my, my elderly patient doesn't, her family doesn't want her to know a particular diagnosis. For example, maybe she's got cancer and they think that uh, if we tell her she has cancer, then she's going to lose hope and the, the few remaining months of her life are going to be miserable and we can protect her from that, right? So maybe some really laudable goals of not telling her. You know, we, we have an obligation to, be, to maintain confidentiality, but is this a situation where we would maintain it or break it or maybe break it in certain situations, but not others? So mm -hmm. yeah, sometimes called the therapeutic exception. Like if we think revealing some information to a patient would be so detrimental to their health, that we, it would actually be worse for them to know than not know, uh -huh. maybe. Although I think generally I teach that as like, that is a huge exception. Like that is the minor, it has to be like a really dire situation in uh -huh. order for that. To, like somebody would have to tell a very convincing story about, you know, somebody said, oh, if I ever learned that I had cancer, I, you know, I would kill myself. Like it'd have to be really strong like that for me to say yeah. that, that we would not disclose that information. Yep. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. So, all right. Tear us off. Tear us off. One and two. Yeah. Well, thanks, Tyler. Another kind of depressing case that you helped bring to life. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, the, I, I think the context and the, the de details, particularly about Dr. Moore, who ended up mm -hmm. losing his job, by the way, uh, uh, yeah, because of this, um, I think it helps kind of flesh out kind of what the court was thinking, which that's right. Helps. Yeah, and that's more complicated than it gets taught, so that's it's helpful to know. Yeah. All right, thanks, Tyler. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. We can't do this podcast by ourselves. We've tried, and it's not pretty. Our team includes our research interns, Michaela Kim, Madison Foley, and Macy Hutto. Special thanks to Helen Webster for social media and production support. Our theme music was created and performed by the talented Chris Wright. Friend to all, dad to two, and husband to one. Podcast art was created by Darian Goldenstall. You can find more of her work at dariangoldenstall.com. You can find more information about this episode and all of our previous seasons at bioethicsforthepeople.com. We love to connect with our listeners. All of our episodes can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and share, and connect on social media. 